Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Million Dollar Portfolio, Jason Moser. From Motley Fool Hidden Gems, Chief Investment Officer Andy Cross. And from Motley Fool One, Ron Gross. Good to see you, as always, gentlemen. Hey, now. Thanks, We've got the latest results from Wall Street. We will talk emerging markets with David Quo. And as always, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. But we begin this week with the Fool Mailbag from Ben in Columbus, Ohio. What are the best wall-building stocks that you recommend? Yes, gentlemen, <laughs> Donald Trump will be the next president of the United States, and investors are asking which in- industries will benefit. A logical question to ask. Andy Cross, I'll start with you. Uh, we already have seen this week hospital stocks taking a hit. Um, when you think about investing over the next four years, are there any in- industries that you think eh, might do a little bit better? Yeah, Chris, there's been a lot. I mean, we saw we saw the reaction, the dramatic reaction in the stock market, and we saw a bunch of industries react uh, positively, um, and and some negatively, like you mentioned. So, like the infrastructure stocks and and some of the defense stocks. Um, what I'm really interested in, though, is. I think this is the first time when we will actually see some corporate tax reform. There's a very good chance the Republican Party and Donald Trump, President Trump, go after the corporate tax reform. I think that actually is going to be good for small cap stocks. Now I'm a small cap sleuth, and that's what I that's They've what I spent a lot rallied, of my time. Right? I mean, They've rallied, but here week. but here's why. So I took looked at some numbers, and of there are 750 stocks traded on the U.S. markets that have tax rates, effective tax rates that are higher than 35 percent. And 55% of those are small cap stocks. So when I think about the stocks that are going to benefit, you hear a lot about, oh, this helps with the repatriation of the dollars of Apple and all those big multi caps. But I think it'll really help the small cap stocks uh, do well. I would um, be looking at industries that will benefit from less regulation because that's what he's been pounding the table on. And so whether it's banks with the dismantling of Dodd-Frank, perhaps, we'll see, <laughs> um, or energy, um, which could benefit from less regulation, you, you could have some strength there. The one thing I do want to caution is campaign promises do not always translate um, to actually they don't? things getting done. So to see people making big, big bets um, in these industries just because of campaign promises. I'd be careful. Yeah. You know, He wants a $1 trillion infrastructure plan. That's not probably going to happen. It's probably not realistic. There may be some infrastructure spending, which actually the Democrats, uh, the Republicans don't seem to like, the Democrats do, um, but it's not going to be that size. So just be a little bit cautious and don't plow all your money in at once. Yeah, so, I think it's a lot of, there are a lot of headlines talking about all of this all at once. And I mean, traditionally, we we espouse the regardless who is the president and and what they want to do. I mean, this is all not going to happen in one day. I mean, we we look at these uh, types of situations through the lens of years and not uh, not daily headlines. With that said, I think I said tongue in cheek before the election actually took place that if he won, we would probably see a little bit of a boost in alcohol stocks like <laughs> Boston Beer and uh, Anheuser Busch and Beth, perhaps. Uh, but in line with what Andy was talking about, I, I do think there is something there, particularly on the tax reform side, uh, with all of these companies that have so much cash overseas. Yeah. I mean, you look at Microsoft, Cisco, IBM, Apple. 
tremendous resources that they are not really doing anything with at this point. Uh, you see Apple taking out more debt just to be able to return value to shareholders that way. So, if there's a tax holiday that allows a lot of these these large cap companies, allows them to sort of bring that money back here, I mean, we're looking at more buybacks, possibly boosted dividends, reinvesting in the businesses here uh, domestically. So, I think that's a big opportunity yeah. that uh, I, I hope to see materialize. I was going to say, this puts a stake. I think we can finally say this puts a stake in the bond market. I mean, when you think about bonds, I mean, we saw a 10 year jump above 2%. We're going to see some inflation start to show up. So, if I was a bond investor, I think I'd be very careful about holding long term bonds right now. Last thing on the election, uh, at the state level, there were eight states, including California, Florida, Nevada, Massachusetts, and Maine, that passed new laws permitting the use of marijuana. And we're getting a lot of questions uh, from people saying, hey, wait a minute. This is clearly a trend. Our investor is going to be able to benefit. When you look at marijuana stocks as a group right now, they are almost to an individual business. They are penny stocks. Yeah, I mean, I think the big challenge with that whole market, and, and certainly I wouldn't go chasing the penny stocks. That's really a dangerous game. But I would say um, that that the 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 marijuana the companies that are that are dealing with the marijuana um, market, they're going to have fine they have financing problems because uh, it's not a federal law that marijuana is is legal, and a lot of banks don't want to touch those businesses. So they have they have a lot of trouble in just managing their day to day cash flows. And while I think there's a lot of small companies out there that look interesting, I think once the big boys really start to get into this, the altruism. Of the world, you're going to see them really take over this industry because they know how to get it done. All right, let's move on to earnings. The Walt Disney Company wrapped up its fiscal year with a fourth quarter report featuring lower revenue out of the TV division. They're still losing ESPN subscribers. Not really a shock there. CEO Bob Iger, though, appears to have turned things around on the conference call. He's got that magical Disney touch, right? Um, I think ESPN's challenges, first and foremost, do not mean that Disney's best days are behind it. I think they are dealing with a bit of a challenging environment, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, traditionally, uh, working on this cable model, ESPN was a no brainer tethered to the cable uh, subscription because. We didn't really know how much Disney was making from that relationship, but we had some pretty good assumptions, and they were making a killing from it. At this point now, it's all a matter of distribution, and that's really the nut that they need to crack. It's just distribution is a far different uh, model than it was just you know 10 to 20 years ago. So they're taking advantage of over the top. They're taking advantage of skinny bundles. Uh, they are going to launch a, a on demand. Uh, personalized style ESPN branded offering in 2017. They have that big investment in BAM Tech. So they are looking at this and trying to figure out the best ways to solve it. And honestly, I think ultimately it opens up a bigger market opportunity. Perhaps they're not making as much an operating profit. Uh, that they were before with with being tethered to cable, but it opens up such a large market opportunity. I think there still is plenty of of room to go there. And it was interesting to read over the week, or I saw uh, John Malone had published yeah. a piece saying he could actually foresee a time where ESPN considers spinning off from Disney or Disney yep. considers spinning off ESPN. And I mean that makes sense if the economics aren't there. I mean maybe it is worth it, and and it really allows Disney to focus on what it does so well as an IP company because. 20, 30 years from now, they're going to still have all of that IP. 
and a lot of sequels to go with them. And, and we know, we've seen to date, they've proven to be very astute um, and able to do that. And then one final thing, Disney Shanghai, obviously, uh, a lot of talk going into the opening. They brought in about 4 million people in the first four months. To put that in context, uh, Disney World down in Orlando brings in about two, 20 million people per year. So, Shanghai Disney off to a great start, and they anticipate breaking even on that uh, far sooner than was anticipated. And, you know, the stock has not done very well over the past, over the past year, but I think you're looking at a, at a company is still fairly. I mean, in in the big media landscape, they are still small enough that they hopefully can still be nimble. And maybe it is John Malone. He's a he's his recommendation of spinning off ESPN. I'm not quite sure if that's actually the way it's going to go. But Bob Iger certainly. I mean, he came back to the. You never really left. He really is leading that company. So hopefully, he will do something that gets this company kind of moving in the right direction. Shares of Macy's up 10 percent this week after a third quarter. Report that, frankly, Ron was anything but impressive. Uh, their, their profits and revenue came in lower than expected. Same store sales. Where is the optimism coming for this company? So, seventh consecutive quarterly decline in same store sales. The, the company is not doing well. The optimism comes from the potential monetization of the company's very valuable real estate holdings. Starboard Value, activist investor, um, guys I know well, have been pushing um, to unlock value in the real estate for, for quite some time now. They think the real estate alone could be worth. $21 billion. The stock is only a $13 billion market cap. So, significant upside potential there if Starboard is correct. Announcement and concurrent with the earnings release that uh, Macy's has cut a deal with Brookfield Asset Management to develop 50 of the locations mm-hmm. to unlock value there. We also have information that um, the Union Square, a store in San Francisco, is um, going to be uh, sold and, and value unlocked there. The downtown Portland, Oregon store. Uh, the Brooklyn store on Fulton Street, um, the $270 million deal there. So the company isn't as going as far as Starboard would like with a spin-off kind of the real of the real estate assets, but they're they're taking it step by step and unlocking value in specific stores and specific groupings of stores. And that's where you see the optimism in the stock. Okay, but the real estate aside, the holidays are coming up. Don't they need to have a really good holiday quarter? Well, it's interesting. So while this quarter, again, as we said, continued a trend of, of poor results, they did say that the fourth quarter looks strong, and, and they used the term improving retail trends in, in the fourth quarter, which allowed them to reaffirm their full year guidance. Uh, so perhaps some some good news for the fourth quarter. But you know what? The proof is in the pudding. Let's let's see how it comes. Yeah, in. and department stores in general. I mean, just that it, they are really struggling. You see a lot of the the folks that the, um, the, the cores of the world and the coach of the world, just not really pushing through to the department stores. They'd rather go directly to the consumers. Graphics chipmaker NVIDIA coming out with blowout earnings on Friday. Third quarter profits sending shares up 25%. Uh, they look good across the board, Andy. Their, their gaming division really crushed it. Well, the gaming division is phenomenal. I mean, they are really broadened out their entire suite of portfolios and, and their processing um, units across just not just gaming, but data centers, um, they have partnerships with Tesla in, in their driverless cars. Um, their their uh, AI um, push into um, uh, artificial intelligence is really gaining stream. So they are knocking it out of the park 
across everything. This is a $36 billion company. It has uh, $6 billion in cash, $3 billion in debt, generates $6 billion in sales, a $1 billion in operating cash flow, spends 25% of their sales in R&D. Stocks more than double. It's up 25% today. So really, things are moving in the, in the direction, not just for them, but for that industry. So they are taking market share in a very fast-growing industry. Coming up, earnings palooza rolls on. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. You got my money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser, Andy Cross, and Ron Gross. Shake Shack hitting the trifecta this week. Third quarter profits came in higher than expected. So did their revenue, and they raised guidance for the full year. Got to tip the cap to them, Jason. Well, let's just go out and buy the stock, Chris. Well, clearly, not some many people did. Share, <laughs> shareholders were doing that. Let's it's, not. It's it's up more than fifteen percent this let's week. Let's not. Let's not. I think this is a great <laughs> example of an investment that could be good, but only at the right price. And up to this point, the price still hasn't really made any sense. But let's talk about the good, okay? I think you made a a good point there, in that they've turned in some very good numbers, impressive top line growth there, forty percent. Same Shack sales. Oh, please. That does exist. It's in the If you release. like Zillow using the word Zestimate, then you'll love Shake Shack calling their same store sales, same Shack sales. Yep. That was up 2.9%, which is reasonable. It's more in line with something like a Panera, less in line with something like a Chipotle back in the days before the E. coli scare. But guidance for the coming year, I mean, they're seeing a same Shack sales between 2 and 3% next year. Uh, most of that seems to be coming through price increases, though, less uh, through traffic. And that probably is a bit of a concern. That you have to at least keep an eye on. Again, going back to the price, though, I mean, I think this is where this thing really doesn't make much sense yet. You look at what the market is valuing each same shack restaurant at, they're valuing those uh, shake shacks at eight. About eight and a half million dollars per store versus Chipotle that the market is valuing at around five and a half million per store, and then we get down to the market opportunity where Shaq they have is milkshakes. Be, yeah, they do. You're right about that. <laughs> but Chipotle's getting ready to test desserts, there right? Go, right. Hey, come on, they haven't made anyone sick yet. <laughs> I mean, I think that you really have to kind of look at the market opportunity really to to, to ascertain whether this is a good opportunity as as an investment goes. And Chipotle's going to open 200 stores this coming year. Uh, Shake Shack's going to open around 25 or so. So, I mean, this is just a bigger market opportunity with something like Chipotle than than uh, Shake Shack. So, again, it could be a good investment, but one where you really have to understand the value that you're getting there for the price that you're paying. And, and I just don't even like the stock at these levels. Well, and restaurant stocks just in general have been just really obliterated as people start to digest both um, the f- potentially fiduciary rules, which we'll see what happens with the Trump presidency, those changes, but also just food costs and labor costs. Third quarter revenue for CVS Health rose more than 15% from a year ago, but shares falling this week when CEO Larry Merlo cut guidance and, Ron, their prescription business is taking a bit of a hit. Ooh, yeah. So the quarter was good, but the big problem here is that in their pharmacy benefit management business, their Caremark business, Walgreens just ate their lunch a bit. Um, they signed a big deal that would cut CVS out of about 40 million prescriptions next year. It caused them to lower their guidance for this year and next year. Um, it's a competitive business. By bringing that benefit management business in-house, that's good. But then it allows Walgreens to kind of remain agnostic and go over all, go after all the other benefit managers out there. And that's what they've done, shutting CVS out. So that's a problem. Even with the lowered guidance, the company still does well, but you know it's going to take a chunk out of their business. It's only 13 times, maybe 14 times earnings um, based on the new guidance. 
guidance, certainly not an expensive stock. But with this uncertainty here, I'd take a wait and see attitude to see how how actually the the revenues and therefore the profits come in or down. Think they should start selling cigarettes again? I do not. <laughs> Shares of Priceline hitting a new all time high this week after third quarter profit and revenue came in higher than expected. Somebody had a good summer, Andy. Yeah, they had a great summer. I mean, uh, when you think about what they're doing with their um, their room nights were up almost thirty percent. Their gross bookings up twenty five percent for the quarter. Revenues nineteen percent. One challenge they did have, Chris, is is they bought Open Table back in two thousand and fourteen for about two point six billion dollars, and they wrote down nine hundred and forty million of that. Ouch! During the quarter, um, so a very large chunk of that, which just kind of goes to show you when you think about um, companies buying other online companies for a lot of money with a lot of goodwill. I mean, that was more than half their goodwill on Priceline's balance sheet. So they really had a, a tremendous quarter. They can really show the show their business model doing very well, especially international. But they made this acquisition maybe stretch a little bit on the price, and they're showing the consequences for that right now. What happened to TripAdvisor this week, Jason? <laughs> the stock got hammered, Chris. What do you mean, what happened? <laughs> no, I mean, it really did. And as a, as a shareholder here, it, uh, it hurt a little bit. And bottom line, the numbers weren't all that bad, but really, management laid out in the call that this move to instant booking, where TripAdvisor is becoming more like Priceline and an OTA, uh, it's just going to take a little bit longer. And the problem is, if it's going to take a little bit longer, and it doesn't monetize quite as nicely as desktop does, well, the market just isn't really known for its threshold for patience. And so, I think a lot of money left TripAdvisor realizing that 2017 is going to be a big investment year. It doesn't mean that the thesis is busted or the company is not not pulling through on its promise. I mean, all signs point towards success here. It just sounds like it's going to take a little bit longer. But at the end of the day, it's a lot to build out a network of users yeah. like that with that content. And TripAdvisor has built up such an amount of trust with its users that I think that is its true asset. And honestly, as an investor, I can sleep at night knowing that. Well, it's interesting. Priceline and TripAdvisor have a very tight partnership. And yeah. Priceline's a business that generates almost $4 billion in operating profits and spends $200 million on CapEx. And they buy back a ton of stocks. So they have a lot of um, wealth to put into defending their territory, and they will do that. Nordstrom's third quarter profits came in 60% higher than analysts were expecting. Shares up a little bit on Friday after the report. Help me out here, Rod. <laughs> this wasn't a situation where they beat by a penny. They crushed the bottom line. They crushed the bottom line. It's partly the result of the fact that their big anniversary sale was in this quarter, the third quarter, versus last year it was in the second quarter. So if you start making some adjustments, it, it brings down how good it actually looked. But still, this is the second quarter in a row of decent results. Uh, the rack division and their hot look, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, cont okay. uh, continue to be the the big the big growers there. Um, sales were up 10% in in that division. That's nice to see. The full price stores aren't aren't doing as well, but still, um, there is growth there. Um, one negative: they had a book a 197 million dollar write down of their trunk club, the men's business, mm. um, which they had acquired for 350 million in 2014. Obviously paid a bit too much for that puppy. Um, but that, that business is actually growing. It's just that they paid too much, unfortunately. Company raised guidance. Uh, company looks like it's doing well. Stock's not expensive here. Uh, it could have been worse. They could have bought Open Table and have to write down something <laughs> like that. There you go. All right. Ron Gross, Jason Moser, Andy Cross. Guys, we'll see you a little bit later in the show. Up next, we are heading to Singapore to get a global perspective from David Kuo. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money.
Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. David Quo is a regular financial commentator for the BBC. He's also the director of Motley Fool Singapore, which is where he joins me from now. David, thank you for being here. Good morning, Chris. What was the reaction on the other side of the world to uh, the election here in the States? Well, I think most people here were totally shocked by what was happening in America. And many people over here were just glued to their television sets. I mean, as each result came in, uh, people were just in awe as to uh, this steamroller that was going through America. Uh, All the predictions were that it was going to be a Clinton win, and everybody was comfortable with that. And then as we saw the results come in, people just couldn't believe what they were seeing, what they were hearing. And as a result of that, Chris, uh, people started selling their shares. Um, many people were, were, were reacting the way that uh, traders and investors normally react in situations like this. Sell your shares first and think about why you actually sold later on. So we saw a massive sell-off in Japan, we saw a massive sell-off in Hong Kong, and even this tiny little dot on the uh, on the equator, Singapore, people started selling their shares as well, and people were then piling into gold, because uh, that's the way that people generally react. So I guess in in summary, it was just uh, it was just shock and horror as, uh, as to what was unfolding in America. In that sense, did it uh, remind you of an event earlier this year with the vote uh, in the UK for Brexit? Uh, yes, it did. Uh, it was probably sort of many orders of magnitude worse than Brexit, simply because of the size of America and the implication that America has uh, uh, on the impact that America has on the rest of the world. I mean, Brexit, I think most people were shocked also, but then they kind of knew that um, uh, uh, what was happening in Britain was a fairly localized uh, issue. But, I mean, this um, uh, event in America, uh, the election of Donald Trump, certainly has implications uh, in many countries, uh, not only in Europe, but also in, uh, uh, in Asia as well. And uh, people were beginning to wonder, you know, what, what, would, what would happen next? And so that was the initial reaction. But then what we actually saw afterwards was um, uh, this this rebound in America, uh, the rebound in the stock market. And I think, you know, there were similarities there as well, because people, I think people realize that um, markets have a way of coping with situations. And they realized that probably the market would rebound, but I don't think they expected it to rebound as quickly as it did. I certainly didn't. I mean, I was very busy on the day that um, uh, uh, the events were unfolding in America. And I, I was so busy that I didn't really get an opportunity to buy. Because my first instinct when I see things like this is to actually sort of uh, start buying shares when, when, uh, when, when the opportunity presents itself. But in this particular case, I didn't even have the opportunity to do so because the rebound came so quickly that the very next day, it was almost as though nothing had happened. And if you had missed out that day completely, gone to sleep, you would never have even realized anything happened in the market. But uh, I think that was one one of the big lessons from Brexit, that um, uh, markets have a way of coping. And in this particular case, it coped uh, only too well. It just reacted too quickly. And then now people are sort of wondering, uh, what is going to happen next, Chris? 
I was curious how you spent the day after the election, and the reason is because I watched an interview that you gave on CNBC on Monday, in which you were very clear about how you were completely unconcerned as an investor as to the results of the election in the United States, because you looked at your portfolio and thought, I see a lot of stocks that don't really uh, have any great bearing on who occupies the White House. And I still believe that, Chris. I I, I don't believe that any of my stocks in any way will be affected. Um, I'll give you some examples of the companies that I invest in. Uh, Unilever uh, in... uh, is what is one of my core portfolios, and I have uh, one of the core shares in my portfolio. And I just think that you know people are still going to carry on using Unilever's products. They're still going to be using soap powders. They're still going to be using. Uh, they're still going to be consuming the foods that Unilever produces. And in that sense, I just think it doesn't really sort of make a great, great deal of difference who is in the White House because people are still going to be doing that. Um, I also have uh, investments in tobacco companies, and I just think, you know, how is that going to be affected in any way by uh, uh, by, by whoever occupies the, the, the White House? And so, consequently, I look at my portfolio, and I'm and I'm comfortable with with what is in there, and that was the reason why I said I, I don't I don't see how the next president in any way is going to affect my shares now. If the shares had fallen, and they probably did on the day, but I, did, I just never had an opportunity to go and buy more. But if the shares had fallen on that day, I really would have seen it as a great buying opportunity rather than a selling opportunity. And I just think that sometimes um, investors don't think things through uh, before they actually sell their, their shares because they are just gripped by fear. And they think that is the, that, that is the way that you should be react, reacting when in actual fact you should be reacting the opposite way and saying how are those shares going to be affected and if they're not then it just presents itself as being a good buying opportunity. Let's move away from the election for a moment. Uh, When you look at emerging markets, they've done better in 2016. It's been a while since emerging markets have had a good year, but they've done better in 2016 certainly than the U.S. market has done. I'm curious as we head towards the end of this year if there are uh, any markets or particular countries that are on your radar as an investor? Oh, certainly, Chris. And and before I answer that, I, I have to give you um, uh, an example, you know, of um, how emerging markets can cope. Uh, I remember uh, back in the 1960s and 70s when uh, uh, when America had a huge amount of influence on uh, trade here in Southeast Asia. And at the time, Many of the shopkeepers, uh, some of some of whom couldn't really sort of speak English uh, very well or American very well, uh, they decided they, they they knew they had to learn the language in order to uh, do business with um, American tourists who were coming over here, and so many of them started to learn English. And then we had the 1980s when Japan started to rise, and all of a sudden the shopkeepers realized that. It was important that they learn Japanese, and so what happened then was that they started to um, uh, go to Japanese classes, and they started to pick up the Japanese language in order to deal with uh, Japanese tourists uh, who, who were coming into Southeast Asia and coming into places like Hong Kong and Singapore. 
Now, my point is that emerging markets here in Southeast Asia survive regardless of whatever happens. Now, if um, Donald Trump uh, is um, true to his word and he says that he's going to start erecting barriers and he's going to start making it difficult for Southeast Asian countries to do business with America, and I don't think that's ever going to happen because I do believe that Donald Trump is a very pragmatic businessman, and I think that um, uh, he, he is not going to close the doors to Southeast Asia. But if he did, all that will happen in the emerging markets here in Southeast Asia is that they'll look for new markets. They will just look for new customers who will buy their products. So if America doesn't want to buy our products, then of course uh, we will sell our products and our wares somewhere else. And we'll just knock on the doors of other countries in order to sell. So. I think the big lesson about the emerging markets over here, Chris, is that we are survivors, and we will survive regardless of whatever happens. And I know this, uh, this event with um, uh, the election of Donald Trump has been pretty seismic, but it is in those seismic conditions that the industries here um, really sort of come to their fore. And these are the kind of industries that uh, I, I am looking for, Chris, you know, these kind of companies who will be able to survive regardless of whatever happens. All right, last question, and then I'll get you, uh, let you go, because I know that you, your business day is just beginning. Uh, before you were a highly respected financial commentator, you were a bookmaker back in the day. <laughs> and your, your former colleagues in the UK have had to pay off some really big long-shot bets this year. Donald Trump, the Brexit vote, uh, Leicester City winning the Premier League. I'm I'm curious when when you saw those long shots having to be paid off. What was your reaction? Were you just happy that you were no longer in that line of work, or did you did you feel some sort of commiseration with your former bookmaking colleagues? Oh well, I tell you, Rob. Yes, I mean uh, that that is the beauty of bookmaking. The bookmakers hate favorites coming in. They always like the long shots because you know that if you have a big race, and you have the 100 to 1 winner coming in, there aren't going to be that many people that will be betting on the long shots. Everybody has their money on the favourites, which is, which is really how bookmakers survive. And the thing about bookmakers is that they don't really care who wins, uh, whether it is the favourite or the long shot that comes in, because the book is constructed in such a way that they will make that they will make a 10% uh, profit or a 20% profit on that particular book. So I think this is the same situation here. It doesn't really matter um, uh, who wins. I, I know from a political standpoint, people will say it does matter. David, you're talking rubbish because it does matter who is going to be occupying the White House. But from a business perspective, I don't think it really matters. And uh, I am not troubled in any way by a... Um, uh, a Trump presidency, because I think that businesses have the ability to, to survive, just like bookmakers have the ability, the ability to survive. And uh, let's say they didn't make a great deal of money on uh, the, the Trump vote or on the Brexit vote. There's always another race coming along. So uh, it is on the next race that you'll be able to sort of start making even bigger money. If you want to get insights into what's happening in Singapore's stock market, you can get David Kuo's free investing newsletter called Take Stock. You can sign up for it just by going to fool.sg. That's the Motley Fool's website in Singapore. Fool.sg. And you can sign up for Take Stock. 
David Quo, always good to talk to you, my friend. Thank you so much, Chris. You have a great day. And uh, we're looking forward to another great day here in Singapore, too. Go down gambling. Say it when you're running low, low, low. Go down gambling. Coming up next, we'll give you an inside look at the stocks on our radar. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio once again with Jason Moser, Andy Cross, and Ron Gross. Uh, before we get to the stocks on our radar, a couple of things real quick, guys. Uh, a little bit more earnings uh, from Wayfair, the online home furnishings company. Uh, they didn't just lose money in the third quarter, Jason. They lost four times the amount of money that they lost a year ago. Shares fell nearly 20% Tuesday morning after the report, and by Friday they had finished up about 7% for the week. What in God's name is going on with this company? <laughs> it is a very volatile holding, and and that is something that I think investors need to accept with this company, at least in the near term. Because as you noted, still losing money. I think really that the most important thing they can do right now is figure out a way to at least get profitable. Uh, the big question really is all down to just when they pull back on their spending to grow the business and acquire customers, are they going to have enough brand loyalty to keep that wheel spinning and grow this business? So, for Wayfair, it all boils down to the percentage of orders that come from repeat customers, because as they continue to pay to acquire new customers, that's expensive. They eventually want to have these customers coming back for more. They don't have to pay for those acquisitions, and it makes the business more profitable down down the road. These numbers are trending in the right direction, but the, but it is a difficult business to set up. It requires constant spending to build out that infrastructure. It is a very Amazon-like business model in that regard. I'm really conflicted with this one. You know, I like the company. I like leadership. I like the opportunity there. But when we model out the numbers, there is a big question mark as to how big they can grow this consumer base and how many orders are these consumers going to place in a given year, given that it's home furnishing. So, a very competitive industry. Obviously, Amazon plays into it in some degree. Uh, just no easy answer with this one. Our email address is radio at fool.com from Halstead Frost in Austin, Texas. Can you tell listeners what you think of Periscope? Versus Facebook Live. I'm just trying to determine which has a brighter future. I think. I mean, I'll just start. I'll, I think the future is pretty bright for both. When you think about streaming video, the quality is certainly good on both platforms. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I mean, I think I think Periscope was one that sort of came in there and knocked Meerkat out of the picture in the very beginning stages of live streaming. Uh, to see Facebook Live come on and then not really knock out Periscope, Periscope has only gotten stronger. I think that's a testament to the strength of both networks. Facebook obviously having a, a very large network, Twitter having a big network in its own right. Um, I, I foresee both of these concepts doing doing very well I mean, in the years. To is come. this like a ABC, CBS, NBC thing someday? Like we're talking three or four key. Networks when it comes to streaming. I absolutely like believe that yes, more and more people will be viewing their content in this way. So, like Twitter, for example, actually has an app on the yeah. Amazon and Apple TV now. You could go watch sports on TV. I think Twitter and Facebook and others, Amazon even, are are really 
helping sort of reshape this media space in the 21st century, and they are going to be challenging those networks that we uh, traditionally grew up with. Yep. All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar this week, and we'll bring in our man Steve Broido from the other side of the glass to hit you with a question. Ron Gross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? Well, I am sorry to sound like a broken record, but in the age of Trump, I have to go back to Titan International, TWI, maker of industrial tires and wheels. Stock is up 190% this year, but if you look at it over five years, it's still down 50%. Um, So, it's good to get some context there. So, Trump has a $1 trillion infrastructure plan that he says he's going to do. We talked about it earlier. Even if it's not even anywhere near that, if it's half, it's a quarter of it. I like like what that means for these types of stocks. Um, Even before this, the mining agricultural uh, industries were looking up, some of the infrastructure was looking up. I think there's at least 40% upside left in this stock, potentially significantly more, uh, depending on how these end markets rebound. Steve, question about Titan International? Knowing it's government and it's slow moving, uh, how long, let's just say, large infrastructure uh, bill was passed, how long does it take to trickle down to Titan International? It would probably take a while. You know, the, the, you'll start to see it show up in, in companies like Caterpillar, which would be a great way to play this as well. It'll take a while, but the stocks will reflect it in advance of that. So, shouldn't Caterpillar really be your stock? <laughs> if you want a small cap or a micro cap, even you go with Titan. If you want a behemoth, go the with Cat. Yeah. Andy Cross, what are you looking at? Uh, Transdime is a provider of aerospace parts, and we found it in Hidden Gems 2006 when it was a sub billion dollar company around that. It's at 14 billion today. It's been a great winner for us. Uh, they report earnings next week. Um, they, uh, the, the, the aerospace products they provide to all different kinds of companies who, who make um, air, uh, jet parts and, and equipment. Um, 90% of their revenues are tied to products that are specific to Transdime, and about 60% of their sales are aftermarket parts. So, when I look at the aerospace market, I look at more and more growth in, in aero travel, the more demand that we're going to have for higher efficient um, products uh, that fly through the air, I think Transdime's a good play to be. Steve? Can they make something to make planes quieter? <laughs> Uh, is there a part that they could put in that just it's incredibly loud when you're in a plane? You know, there they, yeah, there's a lot of those a lot of the new carbon fiber parts that go into the new um, Dreamliner 787 are designed to help not just fuel efficient but make the experience all that better. Transime could play there. And the ticker? T D G. Jason, what are you looking at? Uh, Home Depot earnings are coming out next week. Ticker is HD, and uh, I, I, this has really proven to be one of the more Amazon-proof businesses out there. They benefit from all weather, whether you rent or own your home. You talk about a large market opportunity, and this is the biggest footprint out there, really. Uh, these guys have actually grown earnings per share over the last five years at an annualized rate of 21%. And when you think about that top-line growth was only 5%, they are very good at bringing things down to the bottom line. I suspect that's going to continue. The stock is down year-to-date, but the longer you stretch that timeline out, it is just really phenomenal how bigly shareholders have won with Home Depot. Steve? What's the last thing you personally bought at Home Depot? Wow, gee whiz. That's why the um, stock's down year-to-date. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have to think about the one. Probably some paint. I, I wonder in the age, we saw interest rates tick up here, mortgage rates um, are higher than they were. I wonder if that that hits Home Depot a bit um, for, for at least... The, the near term. I don't think in the near term. I think I think longer term. That's a that's perhaps something to, to keep an eye on. But but I think it's going to take so long to get those up. What do you like, Steve? I'm going Home Depot. Oh. I just bought a plunger Fixed. there. Does that count, Steve? <laughs> it sure does. Okay. That's going to do it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.